So we're going to jump right into the sermon for tonight. So if you have your your Bibles, and maybe it's a, a paper Bible, maybe it's an electronic Bible on the YouVersion app, um, however you're going to be, yes. Balloon tennis? Huh. Keepy uppy is way cooler, or uppy uppy is way cooler. We're going to keep it that. So um, we'd love for you to pull out your paper Bible or the U version. If you want to follow along uh, with the sermon notes and the text for tonight, um, go to the U version Bible app. If you have not downloaded that yet, go to the App Store, type in Bible. It will be the most downloaded app there. And go to the bottom right-hand corner, uh, which is more, and then go to events, and you will find uh, Bethel Youth right there. You will ha- it will be every text that we are preaching through, and it will have all of the notes. Everything that's going to be up on the screen, you can also see that. And so we're going to be reading Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 12. So what we're going to do, we're going to break this down into uh, basically two bigger sections. The first section that we are going to be reading through is Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. So I'm going to read that here in just a second, and then we'll talk about it. We'll move on to chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And then after we're all done, we will go into small groups and we'll be able to uh, process some questions. Maybe there's a question that pops up as we are talk, or as I'm talking about this. I would um, encourage you to write those questions down so that maybe you can ask your small group leader. You can ask maybe people in your small group and maybe you can come to a resolution and maybe get an answer to the question that you have. So let's stand together. Let's read Mark chapter 11. And the reason we stand, uh, there's nothing extra special about or spiritual about standing, but really what it does is it just is an outward sign for us just to show like honor and reverence to God's word. um, God's word is authoritative and it's what we base um, our life off of. It's what we base everything off of. And we just want to show just our our reverence for that. Wow, there's so much going on right now. That is insane. Um, All right, so we're going to read verses uh, 27 through 33. You guys ready? Awesome. Verse 27, it says this. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus replied. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Verse 30. John's baptism. Uh, Was it from heaven? And we'll talk about who John is here in just a minute. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, uh, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. And uh, we're going to, but what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this. Hopefully we find some application and hopefully you leave uh, tonight with a little bit deeper of an understanding of what this is. Um, I want to ask a question um, just by a show of hands. How many of you guys have ever been to a live concert or like a live production? Maybe it was a show like a Broadway show or a play or a concert. 
You were in a musical? Sure. That counts. No. Not for this specific illustration. That does count as a play, but not for this specific illustration. Perfect. That's awesome. Okay, so there's a, show your hands again. Just raise your hands. Okay, so a pretty vast majority. So of those same people, raise your hands. Um, how many of you have ever had like a VIP package or like with your tickets? Yeah, my hand's down too. You've had a VIP, awesome, Monster Jam VIP package. That's awesome. So uh, Monster Trucks, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> okay, so the VIP package or a VIP bundle that comes with your ticket, um, it gives you the chance, if you're going to a concert or you're going to like a play, it gives you oftentimes backstage access. Like sometimes you get to have like a meet and greet with the band or the artist or the actor or whoever it is before things get started or maybe it's when the show is over and sometimes you get like an exclusive like tour shirt or, or something like that. Um, something else that you get uh, with this VIP bundle uh, with your ticket is like a badge. Um, it obviously doesn't say Bethel Youth, like youth leader on it, but it will, you know, oftentimes say VIP or backstage pass or, or some sort of identification uh, that identifies you as part of the VIP group. So the reason that you get a badge or a bracelet or a shirt is it's an identifier so that you have access to the VIP benefits and it also prevents other people just sneaking into this, these VIP access sections. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these uh, videos online. I think Yes Theory did this video where they put on uh, orange safety vests and they had clipboards and a ladder and they tried to see what places they could get into just by simply having a vest, a clipboard, and a ladder and it's pretty incredible uh, what you can do with those things. I watched one video was these guys, these two guys had an orange vest and they had traffic cones and they actually blocked off a road and rerouted traffic and hard hats simply because they had these different identifiers that we equate to like, oh, these people are in charge. Like, I need to listen to what these people are, are saying. So this badge or this shirt or this identifier, it signifies to the event staff or the, the venue staff that you belong in the place that you're in. You've been given permission to be where you are. Um, even just a ticket, like you purchased a ticket, um, it proves to the venue that you have permission to watch the show or the play that you're at. So the, the religious leaders in the text that we're reading, in a sense, are asking Jesus if he had this, this ticket or this badge that gives him permission to do what he just did. So what did he just do? Uh, if you were here last week, you might remember. If you didn't, you can go to our audio podcast on Spotify or Google Podcasts and listen to it. But it's just in these uh, previous few verses, what Jesus did, he comes into the temple, the Jewish temple, and he starts flipping tables over of these money changers. He starts driving out all of these people who are selling animals in the temple. And not just anyone can, can do that. Well, I mean, anyone could do that. I don't know if you could get away with it, um, but you have to be a pretty important person or a person of authority in order to just waltz into the temple and to be able to do that. 
So in our text, we see three groups of people, and they were questioning Jesus. And um, these three groups of people were the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And these three groups of people, uh, these uh, three groups of men made up what was called the Sanhedrin. It's your fun word for the day, the Sanhedrin. So what was the Sanhedrin? So before the time of Jesus and before the, this time right here, the nation of Israel was, was overtaken by the nation of, or the empire, the Roman Empire. And uh, the nation, before that, the nation was broken up into 12 regions that uh, reflected the 12 tribes of Israel. And in each of those regions, there would be towns and villages. And in those towns and villages, there would be the Sanhedrin. They were the ones who governed the people in all legal matters, and specifically like the Jewish people in all of these legal matters. So in the timeline of the story uh, that we're reading here, the nation of Israel was not split up into those, uh, those 12 regions, but there was what you would call the Great Sanhedrin that was based in Jerusalem in this encounter that we're reading today. So the Great Sanhedrin, you could equate it to like the Supreme Court kind of of the United States. It's the, the top um, uh, judicial <clears throat> court in the land. And so for Israel, it was called the Great Sanhedrin. It was made up of 71 men, including the, high, the Jewish high priests of the temple. And these people had lots of power. But they did not have absolute power. Uh, one thing that they were not allowed to do was they could not kill anyone. And so interestingly... <laughs> What? That's horrible. Um, that's why the Sanhedrin, uh, spoiler alert, this is why the Sanhedrin would actually take Jesus to, to Pilate, the Roman governor, so that the Roman governor Pilate could sentence Jesus to death because they technically couldn't put Jesus to death. So we're going to talk about that more in a few weeks. We're talking about his trial and his crucifixion. So we, we, we read in verse 28, the Sanhedrin asked Jesus a question. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? So remember, what are these things? Let's look at a little timeline. So Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the Jews are shouting, Hosanna. And then Monday, this was the text that we studied last week, Jesus curses the fig tree and clears the temple. And then Tuesday, that's the day that we're reading today, Tuesday, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem and is walking in that same temple that he just drove everybody out of the, the previous day. So these leaders want to somehow catch Jesus into a trap and give them an excuse to arrest Jesus for blasphemy. But the catch is they're really fearful. We talked about this last week too, but these, these religious leaders were extremely fearful of these crowds because these crowds were loving what Jesus was teaching. But they wanted a good reason to arrest him, not just because. So Jesus responds to their question by asking a question. Jesus did this a lot where he responded with questions. Verse 29 through 30. He says, um, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? 
So here's a little um, information too. In this culture, the word heaven was a substitute for the word God. So Jesus is asking these people if God commissioned John or did man elevate him to the position that he was in. And this put them into a sticky situation. John, his name was John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And what he was doing was he was a prophet that was sent by God to the nation of Israel. And he was like basically calling the nation of Israel Israel to repentance, and he was saying that the Messiah has gone, uh, has come. The Lamb of God is here, and so here's the sticky situation. If they say God put John in the position of a prophet, they have to admit that Jesus was also sent by by God because John declared Jesus as the promised Messiah. So where did he declare Jesus as the Messiah? John chapter 1, verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The light meaning meaning Jesus. So later in chapter 1, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So Mark chapter 11, 31 through 33, records the conversation uh, between the leaders that they were caught in the middle of this difficult decision. What do we do with John? What do we do with Jesus? Their choices were to admit John's legitimacy as a prophet and therefore have to admit uh, Jesus' legitimacy as a son of God. Or they deny John as a prophet sent by God and suffer public ridicule. From the, cloud, from the crowd. And they decided not to answer the question and the claim. Verse 33, they answered with like, we don't know. AKA, we don't want to answer because we're kind of stuck in the middle of this. Um, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life, and I'm sure for you, uh, where you don't want to admit that you're at fault. Right? You ever done this? You don't want to admit that you're wrong. <clears throat> and so what do you do? You divert the conversation you know, your parents are asking you maybe if you, maybe something got broken in your house. Um, the memory that comes to mind all the time was, I, I grew up with an older sister. She's four years older than me. And one time she was babysitting me. And we had this tiny little baseball bat. And we were balancing it on our hands. And it fell. And it broke this really expensive, like, vase that my parents got for their wedding. And, you know, it was a really big deal. And so my parents come home. And I was like, yeah, but Taryn was doing it. You know, trying to blame her, even though I was the same, I was balancing it as well. I was putting this vase in danger. But the thing is, is no one likes to be wrong. Like, no one, (laughs) yeah, she does. Really? As you just, I'm so sorry. But no one likes to be exposed for falsehood. But the thing is, is that truth needs to be revealed and falsehood needs to be exposed. And the truth is, um, being exposed for falsehood or having to tell the truth when, you're, when you have told a lie, it can be uncomfortable. 
It can be really uncomfortable, sometimes for a long period of time, but that's necessary for us to grow as a person. And these opportunities help us become more like Christ and live uh, truthful lives that don't seek just this power or this position over our siblings or our friends, but chooses to serve one another as Christ has served us. It's like these, these religious leaders are weighing out their, their options. It's like they're weighing out which one's worse, being ridiculed by the crowd or being exposed by Jesus. So like we've been talking about, the response was, you know, we don't know. So Jesus, he tells um, a story to illustrate to them uh, what has been happening. So this is where Mark chapter 12, verse 1 comes into play. Verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. So what is a parable? Parable is not really a word that we use oftentimes. A parable is, a, is really simple. It's a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Jesus used parables a lot in the Gospels to describe different things. And so he's about to tell a story to illustrate what's been happening. Verse, second half of verse 1. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, and some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Verse 7, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. So what then will the owner of the vineyard do? This is Jesus talking. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Finally, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So, can we be honest that um, we probably don't, uh, I'll be honest too, I had no idea what was going on in this story um, until like yesterday when I was studying for this, just full disclosure. But the, the picture that Jesus is giving is beautiful. So what's happening in this parable? So this man, he plants a vineyard, and he hires these different farmers to take care of it. Um, this was actually a very common practice in the first century of Israel. Like landowners would purchase property, they would develop the land, and in this case, in this story, he would plant a vineyard, and then they would hire these different farmers to take care of it, like I said. When it comes to harvest time, the owners of the land would come to the farm, and they would request their portion of that harvest. So who or what do the characters in this story represent? I've laid it out for you. Um, I got a picture for you. The vineyard represents Israel. Ronald Allen, uh, he said this about uh, Israel being the vineyard. He says, the language of vineyard had long been a symbol of the promises of Jewish covenantal community. So the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. The landowner 
uh, represents God. The tenants, they represent the Jewish leaders, these three groups of people that we're talking about. Uh, the servants, they represent the prophets that have come before Jesus in Israel. And then the landowner's son represents Jesus. So when the landowner, who was God, sent his servants, who were the prophets, to call the people, which was represented by the vineyard, back to himself, they were beaten and murdered. The tenants don't want anything to do with the owner. So the landowner sent his son because he thought for sure they would respect my son. I'm the owner of the land. They, they need to show some respect. And, and something worth noting here is not to allegorize one of the statements that the landowner makes um, who represents God in this story. So verse 6 says, uh, he sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. So um, reading this in the context of the story, um, verse 6 almost communicates the son as like a last-ditch effort. And it seems as if the, the landowner is unsure of the outcome. The thing is, we have to know that this is not to imply that God didn't know how people would treat Jesus. We can read this, we can see it as a last-ditch effort, but that isn't at all what Jesus is communicating. God knew how people would respond. He knew many people would reject him, especially the Jewish people. God knew when he sent Jesus that he would be killed, but the beauty that came from Jesus's sacrifice would be that he would give an opportunity for all people, including um, the Gentiles, who were the non-Jews, to be into the family of God. So in this story, the Jewish leaders were at fault for not stewarding the nation of Israel well. So what were they at fault for? One commentator stated this, says the Jewish leaders have assumed authority and control over the religious and civil systems that God means them to be stewards of. So what's happening is these Jewish leaders were assuming a role that they were not intended to assume. They were meant to mediate the relationship between man and God, not dictate and control how they would do that. So God would send these prophets to bring Israel's allegiance back to himself, but they would beat or kill the prophets as we're seeing in this, in this story. The same commentary stated this, the leaders seem to think that if God has no more representatives, they will be free to rule as they wish. They don't realize that God's plan has always been to expand his attentions to the whole world. And if the Jewish leaders won't be a part of the plan, they will be removed. So Jesus ends this story, verse 9, by asking the Sanhedrin a question, like, what, what are the owners of the vineyards going to do? And what we see is Jesus doesn't even wait for an answer. He just answers his own question. He says, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. To be honest with you, this text is a bit of a shocker um, for me. And so I needed to really look into what does this actually mean? And one commentator put it this way. He says, this is one of those verses that needs to be defined by what it doesn't say as much as by what it does. So a question we need to ask ourselves is, does this verse imply that God will kill the people that oppose him and the plan he has? So is God, if you, if you oppose God's plan, is he just going to wipe you out simply for opposing his plan? Um, a detail we need to remember is that the tenets in this story are the Jews, more specifically 
the Jewish leaders and teachers. And so ever since God chose Israel as his people, God has protected them, he's nurtured them, he's brought freedom, and he's equipped this nation to bring about the promised Messiah, who is Jesus. Unfortunately, the nation at times had not reflected or responded well to the care or the blessings of God. So when Jesus came to bring salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles, they didn't like this plan at all. We can see that they're getting frustrated with him because he's breaking down their system. He's including salvation to all people. Even though this was the plan all along, this was written in the Hebrew scriptures for a millennium. The Jewish leaders and teachers, they specifically rejected him instead of using the nation of Israel to bring salvation to the world. God uses fishermen, he uses tax collectors, he uses zealots who were basically people who were violent towards the Roman government. He uses ordinary people like you and I. And he would change them, he would transform them by his grace and his forgiveness, and he would send them out to spread the gospel to the nations. So the responsibility of spreading the news of Jesus, which in this story is the harvest, is now on the shoulders of the church, who is the others in this story. So Jesus' point in verse 9 is that God will move the Jewish leaders aside and use the ones who have surrendered their lives to him to spread the gospel of salvation. And so this does not mean that God will kill anyone who opposes him, but it does mean that God is sovereign and he will work things out according to his plan. So in in closing, Jesus concludes this parable by quoting Psalm 118. So it says that the stone the builders rejected has become the the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the builders are the Jewish leaders and teachers. The stone they rejected is Christ. And Christ is the foundation on which the church is built. And this cornerstone is in reference to how these buildings were built in this time period. Very skilled craftsmen, they would um, inspect these stones and make sure that these lines of the stone were perfect because that would be the baseline for the buildings that they were made. If the lines of the stone and the shape of the stone wasn't perfect, the whole building would be out of whack. So what scripture is is describing is Jesus being that perfectly straight block and foundation of our salvation. He is the beginning of our salvation. He is the beginning of our relationship with God the Father. In a similar interaction with the Sanhedrin, the Apostle Peter would quote Psalm 18, the same one we just read, and reinforce that Jesus is the truth and he is the salvation. Acts 4, so salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And what was the response of the Jewish leaders? They were upset. They were upset because Jesus was calling them out for what they were doing for leading people astray. Again, they wanted to find a way to get rid of him, but with some hesitancy because they were afraid of what the crowd would do because Jesus was relinquishing their power and exposing their corruption. And so I want to leave you with one thought before we go into our small groups, and it's this. God is sovereign over everything. Nothing is outside of his plan, and Jesus is the foundation of our salvation. 
And if you're sitting here tonight and maybe you've even, maybe you've never um, even thought about Jesus as your salvation, Jesus as your Savior, I want to encourage you to think about that, to process the fact that the God of the universe became a man, came to this earth for you. He lived a perfect life without sin, died the death and the payment of sin that we should be dying so that you could have hope, so that you could have a relationship with your creator. And scripture says how we begin that relationship is by confessing that Jesus is God, that Jesus came to take away your sins. And it says that if we repent of our sins, if we ask for forgiveness, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins. And when we repent of those sins and, we, and when we surrender our life to Jesus, we are adopted into his family. We have hope not just for heaven and eternity, but we have hope on this earth. And so if you want to be a part of that, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, all you need to do is to, to, to surrender, to, to speak it out and to say, Jesus, you are the savior of my life. Would you forgive me of my sin? And you can do that with a friend. You can talk to somebody about that. You can talk to your small group leader, and they can walk you through that. Maybe you want to process it more. Maybe you want to ask some questions. I, would, I want to let you know that our small group leaders are here for you to answer your questions and just talk to you about those things. And so we're gonna, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go into our small groups, talk about questions about this text, and then your leader will dismiss you at the end. Um, guys are in the back. Girls are in the front. <clears throat> um, high school is on this side of the room. Middle school is on this side of the room. And like I said, your small group leader will dismiss you.